Welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. I'm Amy Orban, joined in Oxford by Sam Parsons. Hi. <laughs> um, who is doing okay. Um, and as you can hear over the airwaves, but we're also joined by the amazing Sophia Cluvel. Um, Hi, I know my laugh is loud. I'm sorry. Oh, don't worry. It was. It came all the way from Amsterdam, so um, it, that's laugh. great. Um, and instead of making fun of people (laughs) I think we should introduce a very special guest today so we're very happy to have Psychbrief with us you might know Psychbrief as on the blog on Twitter uh, on Facebook kind of commenting about open science issues for at least as long as I can remember being on Twitter but yeah Psychbrief thanks for thanks for being with us today Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, uh, naturally, you're not psych brief in real life. If not, I'd be a bit sad for your parents. Um, So can you give us a bit more information about kind of what you're doing at the moment? Um, Was your career stage? uh, Just to give us a bit more information about who we're talking to and our listeners are listening to. Yeah, 100%. So I'm a first year doctoral student based in London. I'm doing educational psychology, and that mainly involves studying how children and young people learn and like work in the classroom, helping to support them, typically those with additional needs like uh, ADHD or autism and whatnot. Um, But the work isn't just limited to giving diagnoses and whatnot, because that's quite often what people think educational psychology just is. There's also working with teachers and doing like holistic work and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, so based in, as they're based in London, um, really enjoying it. Uh, yeah. Like, so it's, it's, you're saying you're a first year doctoral student, but you're also kind of going into schools, interacting directly with students, how, you know, for somebody as probably many of us, who's never really been confronted with educational psychology, you know, what is, what would you expect to be the same from kind of an experimental psychology department and what is different in your doctoral training? Yeah. So the, the overlap is the research side of it. So I spend half my time doing research. So my first year, it was predominantly lectures in the beginning, which is not the same as say a PhD, but we would, have lectures and then we go on placement and I was based in North London we do that once a week and then we've started the third term of my first year and I'm now working full-time in another um, part of London each area in London is divided up into local authorities and you stick with one for the first two terms then the third term you're there full term full-time I should say and then the second and third year of your uh, doctorate, you apply for a local authority and you're there for those two to three years. In the meantime, you have, in the first year, you have a first year project, which I'm actually currently working on at the moment, trying to recruit participants, which is always bone crushingly annoying, but it's going okay so far. And then that can feed into your final thesis. I'm hoping to do that, but some people will do a first year project just as like a practice run for research, how to structure 
and design and then run an experiment or whatever it might be. And then they'll do something different for the for their final thesis. So the culmination of your work in a written report is the same, not typically as long because the other half of the doctorate is going out in schools and being an educational psychologist. So I'll be writing reports. I'll be meeting with parents and doing all that sort of good stuff. So do you want, in, it's really hard naturally in the first year of, of that kind of training to say, but do you expect to stay in this sort of research long term? Or are you expecting to go out into schools once you've done your degree and, and practice? Ideally, I'd love to do half and half because I really like the research side of it. I really like getting into the stats and that sort of stuff. But I also love the practical side of it. So this course is ideal for me. And once I've finished my doctorate, you have to have a minimum two years as an EP. I was always going to become an educational psychologist, so that's not a problem for me. But in an ideal world, I'll split my time 0.5.5 between doing research working with universities, um, whoever it might be, getting a chance to try and broaden our understanding of various aspects. And also the other half will be based in the local authority and doing all that good stuff. So you said that you wanted, <laughs> you knew that you're going to be an ex educational psychologist for your whole life. Um, so you, you weren't born as an open science advocate. <laughs> um, I kind of felt like you just, <laughs> it's always hard to uh, see the person behind the profile. But yeah, so, so was kind of, would, did you start school knowing that you wanted to be in this area? So initially, when you're 14, 15, 16, they always ask you what you wanted to be when you're older. And I had no clue. So I sort of thought about it. And I was initially dead set on going to join the army. I then went to a, a day, well, an overnight visit at Sandhurst, which is the officer's training route for young people who want to go into the army and become an officer. And I realized that I absolutely hated it and it would have been horrific for me. So I thought, okay, that's out. What am I going to do next? I quite like the idea of teaching, but I also like the idea of going into a bit more depth with it with the research side so I probably didn't think of it specifically as research but I like the idea of pushing that further and I also like the idea of working with young people with learning difficulties what do you get if you slam those two together you get educational psychology I was helped quite a bit by my mum who isn't an EP but sort of suggested this as a potential career and the more I looked into it, I was like this seems absolutely awesome yeah I really want to get involved with this this seems really cool and so I was quite lucky in that one of the first things that I genuinely wanted to do was both viable and interesting and that lot so that's what's out quite nicely it's taken me obviously a fair few years to get to this point because I did my undergraduate in psychology and then I did my teaching qualification was a teacher for a couple of years in various uh like teaching various age ranges so I taught sit from college and then I worked in a specialist school applied for the doctor it wasn't successful the first year because it's insanely competitive so most people don't get on the first try did my master's in psychology of education I thought hopefully that'll be a good stepping stone and then second year was successful and yeah, here I am here you are yeah so <laughs> yeah. a lot of your kind of uh 
blogging and I guess the the Twitter as well kind of focuses an awful lot on methodological issues, replication crisis, mm-hmm. open science, all this kind of stuff. Um, is there quite an overlap in educational psych with the kind of open science area or if, are those two not particularly well married yet? I wish there was more of an overlap. I only really started finding out about open science and all that stuff via social media. So when I was doing my undergrad and doing my teaching qualification, I started reading blogs. I think a lot of people did. The two ones that I remember reading lots, especially when I started, was Neuroskeptic and Neurocritic. I didn't end up going into neuroscience because it didn't interest me as much, but I really liked the idea of being critical about things and re- and their way of writing I thought was excellent where they would take a study or take an idea and really dig deep into it and explore that and they both of them recommended getting on social media especially Twitter as a good way to explore these issues more get more of an understanding so I signed up around about the same time that I started making my blog and from there I just started following people and hearing more and more about open science, what that meant. I knew nothing about it beforehand and none of my training prior to that or even really subsequently has ever touched on open science. Like even now at my do- at, on my doctoral program, there's been literally no mention of anything to do with like open science or anything like that. The only stuff I found is going to additional workshops and talking on social media so twitter has completely changed my the path and the way that i view how to do science so i just have like a um a timeline question about that so because you started your your blog in in 2013 right yeah yeah so so um so were you teaching at that point that was just before i started teaching um I, it's a slightly mundane story, so I won't bore you with all the details, but one of the pieces of coursework for my uh, teaching qualifications was to do, well, one of the options was to do a blog. It didn't, didn't end up doing that, but I liked the idea of having a blog. So I started writing and predictably it was absolutely rubbish, but then when you first start writing, it's not gonna be the best. And I just sort of kept it up since then. Predictably, when you first started writing, no one's reading it. I was sort of shouting into the wind, but eventually just kept on writing. and also maybe enjoyed it. That's why I kept on doing it. And slowly but surely, as time went on, started getting a little bit more interest in it. And the main thing that I found from this, doing the blog, and why I would recommend it to loads of different people, is not just the practice side of it, because obviously writing is such an integral part of being a researcher whoever it might be so getting that practice in writing is really important but it's a really useful learning exercise because I found that what's kept me motivated is there'll be a topic that I don't know anything about and I think hmm I'd like to know more research into it and then whilst I'm making those notes and writing them up I think perhaps other people would like to know about this as well so I then structure it in a way that makes sense for other people and in that way it's both maintained my interest and it's been hugely beneficial because I've learned so much stuff by having this blog by having an opportunity to write about loads of different things because say for example stats my stats 
education is all very typical for UK institutions. Not that it, I'm not trying to shade at it, not at all. Just it's relatively cookie cutter in that you got your statistical tests, you punch buttons in SPSS and hope a significant result falls out. And I knew nothing else beyond that, but through mainly through social media and other avenues, I've been given the opportunity to explore other ways of doing it. And it's been, yeah, it's completely changed how I do everything. It's been awesome. So, if, um, I mean, yeah, it's like uh, your your blog reads very nice and very like uh, thank you very much. Like sort of like like like, like your learning um, and and sharing that uh, that knowledge. But so like weird question. But when you were applying for your masters and your um, your PhD, did you disclose the the fact that you were the um, the mind behind the behind this blog <laughs> and and your your platform or whatever or not? I did. I put it in one sentence when I was applying for both my master's and my doctorate. I'm not sure how much of an impact it had because I suspect that the people who were looking over the applications didn't, hadn't heard of my blog and I suspect they didn't go and research it afterwards, but it might have, there's always a chance that it might have had some impact. And I'm, I quite like my blog and I'm quite proud of it. So I wanted to mention it, even if it didn't have much of an impact on eventually getting maybe they're the just being discreet, discreet because of the whole anonymity thing <laughs> yeah absolutely they were they were really very impressed but they didn't want to sort of shout exactly out exactly yeah <laughs> 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 top secret and classified they have like a spy file being like censored information <laughs> yeah 100%. but yeah so so why anonymous I guess that's the question in the room. Um, why did, did you decide to keep your identity secret when you started your blog? The reason why I first started doing it was because I was writing it when I freely admit I knew very little. I know slightly more now, but I've maintained this mainly as a, mainly because I like it, to be honest. And I I feel that I don't, behave in any different way than I would if my identity would be to, if I were to reveal my identity. So it started off as, I want people to judge my work for the quality of the work, or lack thereof, rather than who I am as a person. Because I suspect if they saw that I was writing it as just some, uh, I say just, as a PGC student, as a teacher training student, or as a a teacher people might might not necessarily dismiss it but might not take it on board whereas if i'm writing under a pseudonym they've got nothing to go on so the only thing they can compare it to is is this person saying worthwhile things are they writing in an engaging way are they someone worth listening to and hopefully over time i would persuade people that yes i I'm not going to take up that much of their time because I typically try to write shortish blog posts, but hopefully it's sort of packed with useful information. So there's there's nothing really stopping me from revealing it, but until I kind of have to, I kind of just want to maintain it as it is. I think there's a parallel with neuroskeptics, not that my platform is anywhere near as large and he's definitely a lot better than I am, but he 
behaves in pretty much the same way, or at least I interpret it as he behaves in pretty much the same way as he would if it were a, um, if it was him personally, except maybe not all the time, because there've been a few times where he's sort of been very critical of work and he said his pseudonym has protected him. But my, my work typically isn't about criticizing other papers per se. It will typically be like more information. If, if someone were to say, if I were to criticize a paper and someone were to say, who are you? I will happily say who I am. So I did a blog post a couple of months ago about uh, analyzing ordinal data as though it's interval. And the paper that I looked at, I was very positive of it because it's an excellent paper, but it was by Little and Krish. I think I butchered his surname, so I apologize. They asked me who I was just as a bit of uh, context as to who I am. And I happily said who I was. So if someone asks me or has a problem with that, I will freely say, but for the moment, I'm just maintaining the pseudonym because I quite like it. And I feel like I, at this point, if I were to behave in bad faith or whatnot, that would completely destroy the trust that I've built up in readers. And if I were to start lying or getting really weird, then people would stop reading me. So there is, I'm not free to behave as I want. I don't have carte blanche to just be a jerk or anything like that. So hopefully that's a reasonable justification of why. But most, like, most people set out anonymity on, especially anonymity over social media as, like, the one reason, the, the big carte blanche, as you kind of alluded to. And I, I think something a lot of people assume that probably don't have a pseudonym is that a pseudonym is something you can hide behind. You know, it's something that you can do things that you wouldn't do if your name is attached to it. And I was very struck that you said, you know, I wouldn't do anything differently. So what would you say to those who would say, kind of say that about anonymity kind of causing more harm because it allows people to say whatever they want? I think that's a fair point. I don't know how strong the literature is on this, but I remember a survey was shared, I can't remember how long ago, and it was showing evidence that those who engage in negative behaviours, in abuse, whatever it might be, those aren't typically done or aren't any more likely to be done by people hiding behind anonymity or pseudonymity. It's typically done by people with using their real name. So I don't know if... There is obviously the risk that people hiding behind anonymity will behave in really unpleasant ways, but I don't think having that anonymity will necessarily protect you. And in and the reverse side of that same coin is that being posting or writing or tweeting, whatever it is, under your own name, that doesn't mean you're going to be respectful and pleasant because you get plenty of people who have used their real name or whatever and they're being very, very unpleasant to people. Yeah, that's, that's a very fair point. Um, well, having learned so much more about, about you and, and more about your thinking behind the blog, I think our listeners deserve a short break and we will then okay. continue talking more about open science. Sounds good to me. You are listening to Reproducibility, serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at Reproducibility. 
rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some speciality flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to Reproducibility. We're joined today by Psych Brief, who has given us a very brief but thorough overview of um, what he does, currently the motivation behind the blog, and some pretty nice insights into anonymity and what it does enable and doesn't enable somebody to do online. Um, Something that kind of struck me is that actually you've been blogging on this for quite a long time in terms of our listenership of mainly ECRs um, and people that we have had on, you know, so since 2013, those were the times when it was still kind of all at the very, not, it's naturally never been at the very beginning, but it's very close after false positive psychology, et cetera. So how did it feel like back then and has your feeling about the open science area changed now? I think 2013 for me certainly is a really important date because beforehand I had no real conception of open science or anything like that. And then with the publication of the reproducibility project and the massive discussion that went on around that, that really opened my eyes to this whole new world of open science and what research degrees of freedom meant, all that sort of stuff. And before that, um, actually, well, actually, I remember having a conversation with people who were psychology minded that weren't, say, researchers or anything about the reproducibility results. And I defended the replicability, said, ah, oh, but if you look at it in certain ways, it's not 33%, it's like over 60% and this, that and the other. So I was doing a bit of deflection because I wanted to protect the image of psychology. But as I was reading more about it on social media, papers, whatever it might be, getting a fuller understanding of what's going on. I was like, okay, something is really, really wrong here. And we kind of need to sort this out. And I have a very all or nothing personality. So when I saw all the problems were being uh, presented and different solutions that were being suggested, I was like, these seem really good. Let's go for that. And completely embraced it wholeheartedly. And I've kind of gone along with that pretty much since then. My stance has softened somewhat in the sense that I'm not like quite as hardline, like everything must be pre-registered. If you don't make your data open, it's not worth it. Which as a young, very enthusiastic person back in 2013, I was probably a little bit belligerent about it. And I've softened my views on that a little bit, but I do strongly believe that pushing towards open data, trying to pre-register, pre-register things when it's applicable and those sorts of things are really important. So 2013 for me was very, very important. And I remember when I first read the false psychology, false positive psychology paper, I knew it was important. I didn't really know why. I read it and I was like, okay, I haven't really understood this the first time over, but I can tell some, this is telling me something important. 
And then I sort of had to reread it a few times. And then as there was more of a discussion around so- social media, I was like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's what Sam is uh, giving the yeah, pretty, eye, crazy pretty eyeball. Much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, that we have to. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a common experience. It's <laughs> just kind of like and mind it, blown moments that come quite yeah, fast and quick when you start reading into all of this. Very much so. Mm. It's like, oh, oh, there's a problem, but we can maybe fix it. And you're like, oh, but there's this other yeah, problem. Oh, oh, it's worse than I thought. And it just opens up more and more problems as you get further deep, as you get further it's into it. It's all on like, fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we've seg- we've segued into we've segued yeah. into uh, um, the drama series. <laughs> We're all pirates, apparently. Open science um, pirates. Uh, yeah, we're we're starting a new <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, um, Amy, we weren't going to tell uh, people yet. Yeah, so so it seems like you really started your blog in in the middle of everybody starting to realize that that things were just kind of going wrong and and very wrong indeed. Um, yeah. Do you feel like the mentality has changed? Like naturally now, it's it's five six years later. Um, or do you think that the same, everything is pretty much still the same? I think there definitely has been a shift because you see increased register reports, more open data, though, as is often said on social media, you've got to be really careful that we don't get carried away because we are in a bit of a bubble and everyone's talking about social, uh, about open science and how great it is. And then when you go out of that bubble, I speak to like my course mates or I speak to other EPs or education researchers and the topic just hasn't even come up it's not on their radar at all so that's part of the reason why I'm actually quite excited to be in educational psychology because there's no real discussion around open science or anything like that so I want to really kind of encourage I don't I don't want to come across as too hard-nosed about it or anything like that but I would like to encourage other education researchers and other EPs to take this up. Not that there aren't education researchers who are practicing open science. You've got um, Tim Van Der Zee, who's uh, doing some really cool work with education stuff. He was actually a guest on your blog a while back. Uh, sorry, on your podcast a while back. And yeah, the first. Yeah. No, was he the first? Yeah, he was the first. He definitely had the most professional <laughs> setup <laughs> of all time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Tim does some really good work around yeah, MOOCs, isn't it? As so well. I, I want to help push that conversation forward. And I think as a general point for early career researchers, whilst it's quite difficult to keep up to date with all the things that are changing and it can be a little bit overwhelming, which I've definitely felt, it's a really, really exciting time to be starting out in academia because there are these big shifts going on and it's only going to become more prevalent and more important so getting on the bandwagon really early is really useful and also from a slightly selfish point it's quite good that starting out I don't have 10-20 years of doing things the previous way that I then have to almost unlearn so I'm starting with a blank slate and can push on from there so I'm really lucky in that regard but being in a in a blank slate field um as a person just starting mm-hmm. out it, you could also frame it in a completely different way and say that you know it's really disheartening or it's really 
overwhelming or challenging. So um, do you feel that sometimes or do you feel mainly that it's kind of something positive in your life? I guess at the moment, it's I've got a relatively Pollyanna, overly naive view of things that, yes, we can make this work. Let's do this. And I imagine as time goes on, that enthusiasm will be ground out of me slowly but surely. But I do think that there is a real chance of improving things in all manner of fields because you've got social psychology bore the brunt of it over the last couple of years and other fields haven't really reckoned with it just yet but there does seem to i hope there is more of an awareness of that with people talking about it just casually mentioning have you thought about sharing your data have you heard about this that the other so slowly but surely pulling I want to call it the Overton window, though I don't think that metaphor quite works, but around open science and making it more of a part of the furniture when it comes to discussing how we do things, that it's no longer, oh, you're sharing open data or what's pre-registration. It's, yeah, I am going to pre-register. I am going to share my data. And that becomes... You You did mention how you have changed tack a bit around things like data sharing, things like making everything open. Um, has that been a kind of gradual mm. development? or Because naturally now that you have been blogging for six years, not only the field has developed, but, but probably you have as well. Yeah, 100%. My, I guess you'd call it my sophistication around these ideas has, has increased because beforehand it was you should make everything open, you should pre-register everything, whereas now I'm reading pro-open science ideas, but that are rightly pointing out limitations or caveats or areas where it might not be appropriate. So there have been some really enlightening papers and blog posts that I've read over the past, even just the past month or so, about how to share data ethically. Because if I'm conducting research with participants who are from a certain subgroup or have a specific Uh, diagnosis and I make that public and I don't and even if I anonymize them if it's from a specific area with a very specific diagnosis it could be relatively easy to re-identify people and that's really really worrying so a greater appreciation of the limitations and how to ethically share data there was a really good paper that I shared on Twitter a couple of days ago by Michelle Meyer about ethical data uh, making uh, data, ethic, open data ethical, and I really, really recommend people read that. And my appreciation for pre-registration, whilst I'm a strong advocate for it, I have a more nuanced understanding of it because of some really good blog posts by Daniel Navarro and Iris Van Roij. I'm really sorry, I've probably butchered your surname there as well. Um, talking about how in some areas or in some ways of exploring questions into theoretical modeling or something like that pre-registration isn't really appropriate it doesn't really do what you want it to do it doesn't really help so not being hard as hardline as you must pre-register everything i think makes the message more appealing because rather than an all or nothing mentality which i kind of have to fight against it's here's a good way of doing it 
it may work for you. But if not right now, maybe consider it in the future. So, I was just thinking whether it's, uh, Sophia, you're, you're not in theoretical modeling though. You're looking, your master thesis is on cognitive modeling, if I... Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Then I, I was just trying to put uh, A and B together, but any modeling is not the same modeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, was like, I guess like they're, they're doing like model development. Yes, right? I so. don't really have a full grasp of that kind of research because it's not my field at all, but they made a really good point as to why it wouldn't really work in their area. And when those counter arguments or even nuanced points are presented with good evidence i'm like yeah absolutely that's a really good point i'm going to alter my views around this topic and be a little bit more sophisticated in my thinking i think it's a positive yeah well i mean yeah no i mean like no i agree right like there there, there are areas of there are kinds of research where it doesn't make uh, as much sense to pre-register for example but That doesn't mean that, yeah, I don't know. I think I think those particular those particular blog posts you're talking about the economic no. society blog posts, right? Those ones, yeah. Those. Yeah, um, I think I think that yeah. Well, I, I I think I think personally that those what what I agree with um, with most of what what they're saying I think is reaching a bit too far um, to kind of go well. It will never be useful. I, I'm not sure if it was just implied or if it was if, if it was actually said, but kind of implying that. That means that like for all of cognitive modeling it doesn't make sense to use pre-registration and that's just not the case right so i yeah. think like yeah I th I think we need some more nuance there yeah definitely and i think just having those conversations is really important and being able to critically evaluate it and think about yeah when it's appropriate and when it's not because there definitely will be times when you absolutely should do it and it'll be really helpful Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the nuance point is really important um, there. And I think naturally, these are balances that we're still testing out. And we're probably, you know, on the first side, you hear an extreme view, and then another view is, is um, an op opposing views voice. And then you probably at the end meet somewhere in the middle. And actually, our field is still so very much in flux, that we're all adjusting things on the go. So it really do, it does sometimes feel like, yeah, everything's up in the yeah we're building something while we're already riding it <laughs> yeah, lay, laying the tracks as we're hurtling along There's yeah that, that gif is i can I, I now see in gifs you know this is the problem <laughs> if you spend we're, too we're much time on twitter we only think like gifs so yeah um so is there if there is kind of one thing you could eradicate from the current research literature what would you kind of magically eradicate you know do you have a pet peeve of what people do in your area which you would like to dispose of forever that's a really good question i i think something that i see quite frequently is this is a, a pretty common one i imagine but everyone getting really excited when it's a significant result and then oh, the study was wrong, or there's nothing here when you get a non-significant result. And I think a greater appreciation of what a p-value means would be really helpful. But also, I'm, I don't fall into the camp that we should ban p-values completely. I'm not persuaded by that either, though I would like to learn more about Bayes, definitely. But I think something that would be really helpful, certainly in my field, but also I think just in general, 
is if we embraced, uh, sorry, if we embraced uncertainty a little bit more, that we appreciated the difficulties in collecting the data, interpreting and whatnot. And I'm, I'm by no means free from this. I very quickly leap to a positive conclusion when there's, I see that significant result, or if there's a failed replication, I immediately think, oh no, that effect doesn't exist. Discard the whole thing, burn it down. So I, I need to embrace that uncertainty as well. It's definitely a, a, a suggestion for myself, but appreciating that there's those degrees of evidence, you have to consider all those different factors in that. I think that would be very beneficial for, for everyone. Dan, uh, Andrew Gelman's written quite a bit about this with the embracing uncertainty and whatnot, and then goes into more technical stuff that goes way over my head. So I need to learn more about that before I can really get to grips with the different flavors of bays and everything, because at the moment I have, I, I, I recognize the word priors and posteriors, and I barely know what they mean. Mm. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Like, Love, love the flavors of bays. <laughs> well, well, go, once we get enough UKRN funding, we'll start making gummy bears called flavors of bays. <laughs> Again, Amy, you're just telling everyone our plans, our big five-year plans. For oh, no. <laughs> um, so maybe, yeah, maybe this means we should slowly wrap up. But before we uh, leave... Psychbrief, can I can I ask you what would be your recommendations for any ECR listeners out there about kind of yeah recommendation for what you would do if you're in their position <laughs> or just <laughs> recommendations in general? I think getting on social media, I probably not necessarily oversell it, but I am perhaps a little bit too wedded to the idea of social media being positive there are obvious obvious drawbacks to it but i think especially on twitter instagram is absolute garbage so just ignore that but twitter i found it's probably the most useful thing i've discovered for my scientific understanding over the past couple of years because it's given me an opportunity to both talk to and watch other far more knowledgeable people than i am talking about these issues and i've learned so much from that so that's been really really useful amazing and well yeah, that, that would be my main one that that's a good that's a very good recommendation uh to end on um well thank you so much psych brief for uh joining us on the podcast it's been a really eye-opening experience to kind of talk through your motivations behind the blog and how they have developed and yeah it's a it's been yeah just just really fun and i hope the our listeners enjoy it as well um so yes thank you very much for listening thank you very much for inviting me on it's been really really good